Heavenly Father, you have sent forth your spirit into the hearts and lives of your people. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine this text to us, that we would see its realities, we would hear its call, that we would not shirk back from what it says, but face the realities of both where we come up short, but also that you are at work within us, bringing all the benefits of Christ to bear in our lives. Would you use this word today, Lord, to strengthen your people, to convict, to comfort, to draw us to yourself. Once again, this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would open in your Bibles, if you don't have one with you, there should be one there in the pew for you. You'd open there to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 29 and 30. And once you have it, if you would go ahead and stand as we give honor to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. I'm sure there's no way any of you who are news watchers, whether you watch MSNBC or CNN or Fox News or CBS, ABC, NBC, whatever news you've been watching recently, there's none of you who can be, and especially those of you who listen to talk radio, can be unaware of Mr. Don Imus. Even if you've never heard of him before in the history of your life, this individual has been placarded and forced into our reality, whether we want him to be or not, because of a choice of words, a decision of what he would say. And the reality is, is that what we've heard, for those of you that have been willing to listen, is a man who says, this isn't really me, it was just a bad decision to say a certain choice of words. You've also heard people stand around him who themselves have been notorious for making rather ill-timed comments and saying, well, that was just a mistake back then. I need to be forgiven. We need to move forward. And yet that same spirit has not been shown by them towards Mr. Don Imus. Now, my point here this morning is not to have a long conversation about what we should think about necessarily about Don Imus as a human being or any of the other people that have hit the airwaves. It is more about the fact that what this reveals to us is, is that communication, speech, is something that reflects the reality that we live in a fallen world. It just does. It doesn't even matter. There are many people who still don't know. And if you don't know what Don Imus said, good. Don't try to find out. It's not worth you wasting your time to find out. It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't edify you. It doesn't build you up, which is what our text this morning says that Christians are supposed to be seeking 
to do to one another and hopefully seeking to do in the world that we live in. What I want us to begin to think about is, A, as we kind of introduce this, is to remember what happened thousands of years ago in the Garden of Eden. And that is that a man and a woman who had been made perfectly for one another to communicate non-verbally and verbally in perfection with the entrance of sin began to use their words to distance and separate. Now the reason why you need to see that is because it should come as no surprise when you start to get close to a person that you start to have difficulty communicating with them. I don't know how many of you in this room are this kind of person, but you know there, there are these social butterflies in our midst who seem to just be incredibly adept at having wonderful conversations with a whole host of people. But some of those same social butterflies have an incredibly difficult time having a conversation with somebody who lives in their home, who is always in their world. And there are several things we have to realize that are going on here. One of the things is, is that you do realize that every single person in your life, if you believe our stuff, and you should because it's what God's told us is true, is that God puts people in your life. Not just the ones that make you happy and glad, but the ones that make you sad and mad. And we really have to come to terms with that. And we have to come to terms with that because if we don't, what we're going to be ineffective at is reversing, if you will, and redeeming the effects of sin in our own lives and in the lives of others. Because what communication in the garden was supposed to do, it was supposed to generate a way of speaking which kept going what God had created, and that was a perfect harmony, a people growing together who always knew the right thing to say, always had a word at the right time. We don't live in that perfect world anymore. We live in a world that is tainted greatly with sin. And therefore, our speech has to be redemptive. It has to begin to speak words of grace, which is what Paul is telling us in this passage. We have to learn to be people who have a right word at the right time, which is leading people to forsake their sinfulness, and grow towards the only one who can make them holy. And that is Christ Jesus himself. That is what Paul's looking at here. That is what he is driving for. And what I want to say to us is, is that I hope what I do is begin to give you a rubric both to not be shocked that people say nutty, crazy, wild things. But also, how do we deal with that? How do we respond to it? How do we not react to it? How do we grow as God's people to actually be salt and light in our communication? And that's what I want to look at this morning as we consider it. I have three points this morning. I hope they help us grab hold of what Paul is saying in these passages. My first point is capture what corrupts. Notice what Paul is saying here in, in verse 29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. The idea here could be, take captive your words. Be careful before they just go blip and there they are. 
Every one of us in this room knows for a fact that we have said something that if we could have had a string attached to it and yanked it back quickly, we'd pay a million dollars for it. Because that, that phrase, that word, that statement just slaughtered the person in front of us. Or made them to look like a complete fool. Or didn't say exactly what we wanted to say. Surely, husbands, you have been at that place where you were trying to say something really encouraging and, and uplifting and, and helping your wife to really feel good. And by the time you got through saying it and then explaining what you really meant by it, and by the time it was all said and done, whatever activity you intended to do that evening was pretty much going to be not so good. And no amount of roses, chocolates, nice restaurants, cards were going to salvage it, at least not right now. Wives, I shouldn't have to say the same thing. Children, bless your hearts. Sometimes say things intending it to be helpful, encouraging, building up either to their siblings or someone else, only to find that their parents say, you shouldn't have said that. Or their sibling goes, well, that wasn't helpful. Parents, sometimes we're striving so hard to speak into our little ones' lives, to bring truth and help into their lives. And sometimes we just say things that teenagers just go, You're speak- you might as well be speaking Russian. It's not helpful. We need to face the reality that speaking to one another is no easy task. And so what I want us to understand is that there among us needs to be a measure of grace towards one another. But there also, and I think what Paul's speaking about right now is, is that we need to be responsible when we say things. There needs to be purpose and intentionality. It's not enough to say, well, I picked my words carefully. What if you picked your words carefully and said all the wrong things? And see, that happens sometimes. Because what really this is getting at is there's got to be something more than just being a wordsmither, being a person who picks choice words out of all the possible words. Really what has to happen here, men and women, is we have to become people who are more concerned about what God's doing in another person's life than what we want to do in their life or what we think ought to be done in their life. And too often in the Christian community, we are highly guilty of rather than looking and saying, what is God doing? What does God want this person to hear? And where is God leading this person? In fact, sometimes some of us are so adept at reading people, we got their sin and where they're in error. We got it figured out. And we can speak right to it. The problem is we don't speak it in the way they hear it or a way they can really come to terms with that reality. And it's not enough to say, well, I told them. Well, I didn't just let it keep going on. We have failed to speak redemptively when we have not spoken to that person in a meaningful, helpful, tangible way, which leads them towards sanctification and a hatred of their sin. Browbeating people does not make them hate their sin. It makes them hate you, which is sin. So we're actually being agents of sin, not help. See, that's why Paul is saying, captivate what corrupts. 
Be thoughtful. Be thinking about what you're saying. Be thinking about the bigger picture. Don't just be flippant about what you say. And I would even say we also need to be not flippant hearers. Because sometimes someone's saying exactly what we need to hear, exactly the way it needs to be said to us, and then we don't like it one bit. And we need to pray that God would give us a heart which is willing to accept rebuke from people who love us. Sweeter, the proverb says, are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. Sweeter are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. Let me make that practical to you here. When one of my pastoral friends listens to a sermon online from me, and I have some nutty friends that actually like to do that, and they call me up and say, you know, Dennis, when you said this, you should never say that again. Boy, there's just a part of me that just wants to go, I preach better than you any day of the week. What do you think? I mean, <laughs> Or if I want to say something to one of my friends. You see, what I'm trying to get us to understand is, is that we really have to think about what we're saying and we have to think about how we're hearing. If we want to be redemptive in this world of the very gift that God gave us, which is communication, which is speech. So here's a couple of verses that hopefully help us to think about that. Luke 6.45, Jesus says this, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. And here's the kicker. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You hear what Jesus is saying? Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And folks, I want you to realize as a minister of, the God, of God, a lot of my job requires me to talk. And for some of you who know me well, you know that probably even if I wasn't a minister, I'd still probably talk some. So this means that, man, I was just getting beat up all week with this passage. Because my life is spent communicating constantly to people about all sorts of things. And I'm not just a minister of the gospel. I actually have other interests. Some of you may not believe this. My children sometimes don't believe it. But I actually do read other things and watch other things and do other things and listen to other things besides theological things. But even in those things, there needs to be a sense of how are we speaking. Let me just say this to you, men and women. I have watched people, including myself, absolutely annihilate another person because my team and their team were playing I've watched people absolutely devastated because somebody just trashes them because of some particular person they voted for 10 years ago. I have a friend of mine who voted for a particular president a number of years ago back in the early 90s. And bless his heart, I mean, he was just trashed in our Sunday school class continuously. People buying Rush Limbaugh books and sending them to him, thinking they were <laughs> jokes. They weren't. They were incredibly hurtful. They were very destructive. We need to think about how we're communicating, what we're saying, what's going on, because it really, what it really shows is the abundance of our heart, what we're really focused on, what's really driving us. Paul says it this way in Galatians. 5, 13 through 15. If you want to turn back, you only got to go back one letter and you can find it there. 
encourage you to do that. Galatians chapter 5, I just want to read these verses and see how they help us unpack what Paul's saying here. He says this, beginning in verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, Paul is not writing to unbelievers here. He's writing to believers, people who trust and claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ and believe him to be at work in them through his spirit. Here's what I want you to hear what Paul's saying here. People are either serving others or they are indulging in their sinful passions. I want you to think about that. When you get into a conversation with somebody, there's one of two things going on. Either you're in that conversation for you or you're in that conversation for them. That's what Paul's saying. Do you understand at the heart of Christianity is what? We're called to love God and serve others. So when you enter into a conversation, you're either serving yourself or you're serving the other person. Paul's going to go on to talk about in Galatians the fact of this idea of this indulging of your sinful attitudes, the abundance of your heart. Either you are saying... And I'll use a marriage example. You're saying something like this. My home was a great Christian home. And I married this person whose home wasn't a great Christian home. It it may not even have been Christian. They got all kinds of baggage they're bringing in. And I very clearly see their baggage. And I'm very graciously desiring for them to come into this new home and let's make it just like the home I grew up in. Now, is that spouse thinking about that person? Or are they thinking about their dream? They're idle, which may be not even be a bad thing, a wonderful Christian home. But having a wonderful Christian home should not be the goal. The goal should be caring about that person you're married to and doing what is necessary and needful in their life for them to grow in grace, which is the means by which you can have a good, growing, wonderful Christian home. We need to be people who speak into one another's lives in meaningful, tangible, helpful ways. What I'm saying to all of you is that theology and doctrine matter greatly. But what we should do is have that moving us towards helping other people, not setting it up as this paradigm by which we smash each other with it when we fail. Because everybody in this room fails. No matter how hard you try. That is just the truth. And Paul is coming and saying, don't do things that corrupt people, that hurt them, that lead them towards more sin, that aid them in their rebellion. Because see, if you come to that person and say, well, you need to, you need to, we need to have this goal and we need to be doing this thing right here. You're not really thinking about them. They're going to come right back to you. People aren't stupid and go, you're just all about yourself. So how have you helped them achieve what you wanted? You haven't. All you've done is given them an excuse to sin more. To say, my fears are right. See, I'm afraid of people because people do you wrong. And see, you're proving it. You're doing me wrong. You're all about using me to get what you want. It's not really about me. And then the other person says, well, you don't really care about having a godly home and having 
children and doing all these wonderful family traditions that we could be doing that would be building up our, our family in, in grace and the love of God and growing us together. You see? And that cycle just doesn't stop until somebody says, we've got to change the whole premise by which we're addressing these issues. We may see each other's issues glaringly well. Most spouses do. I've met very few spouses in marriage counseling that don't nail their spouse dead to right. We are highly adept at figuring out the problem. We oftentimes are woefully terrible at being helpful to solve it. Because we get about ourselves. We start to indulge our own sinful desires. And realize this, men and women, you can be desiring the right thing for all the wrong reasons, and it's sinful. It's simple. Not the thing itself, but the way you're choosing to go about it. And what Paul is saying is capture, capture, captivate what corrupts. Think about what you're thinking. Why do you want to do that? Why do you want to say that? Where is that leading you to? What is your ultimate desire and destination in that conversation? The second thing then I want us to look at in this passage is emphasize what edifies. So the first point was capture what corrupts. The second point is emphasize what edifies. Look at what Paul says here in verse 29. He says this. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. That word could also be translated edification. That which is used to edify, build up, encourage, enable to grow in righteousness. I want us to think about that because lots of times our desire is to say something to someone because we feel like, well, you know, you you said something or you did something or you sounded like you were thinking something that's wrong. The point is, is that we really need to be striving and struggling to say, when I say that to that person, do I really have them and they're being built up in mind? And if I do, there are certain ways that should look. What it should happen to that person is this. It should work towards their good. It should basically be something I say, when I say this, the net result is what I see is where God wants to take people, where he wants to build them up to. Now, that does not mean my own personal preferences. We have to be careful. See, it may be that you feel like, well, you know, seeing that movie, participating in that activity, reading that book, doing this thing, those things may be problems for you. It may not be a problem for another person, which is why you have to be careful that the person really has a sin problem and not a preference problem. They're having a preference that I don't prefer. And you need to come to terms with that. Spend some time in 1 Corinthians. Soak deeply into Romans 14 if you want to have some place in the Scripture that help you begin to tackle how you approach those things. Remember that Paul says, you know, don't get caught up in being an ascetic, trying to do all these things to keep yourself from all these physical realities. The real battle is in the spiritual realm. That's where our, our battle is. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against that person, that person, that person, that person. See, the tendency for all of us, trust me, men and women, for all of us, including myself, is when somebody comes against you, the tendency is to forget that our battle is not against flesh and blood. 
it's against the spiritual powers in the heavenly realms. And we tend to start making people around us the enemy. See, when we start thinking like that, we, we have ceased to be able to, to emphasize what edifies. Because we're not trying to build them up. We're trying to get rid of them or tear them down. And that's hard. I've had people say, you know, I said that to that person because he needed to be brought down a few notches. You see, Paul says the scriptures know nothing about that kind of thinking. I need to humble that guy. When in fact, doesn't scripture say that it's the Lord who humbles us, not us humbling one another? We humble ourselves and God humbles us. So see, speaking redemptively then is figuring out how do I help this person grow in their need for humility? Not how do I humble them? See, that changes everything. It changes the whole way we're thinking about it. Think about parenting in light of that. My job is not to take my children down a couple of notches. My job is to build my children up. So even when discipline comes into play, and trust me, around the Hermiting household, discipline comes into play. When it does, the question is, what is its purpose? For the building up? Or for making our children do what we told them to do because, by golly, you won't embarrass me and you're not going to do what I don't want you to do. And see, far too often, men and women, if we're really honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, sometimes our children can become trick ponies to spout out catechism questions, to impress the locals. And sometimes that's how we treat our spouses. Sometimes that's how we treat our whole lives. We don't really focus on what builds up, what, what promotes this person, what makes them delight in God more. And see, that's really what I think Paul is talking about here is not so much constantly emphasizing where your problems are. It's pointing you away from yourself to the real source of edification. Not getting wrapped up in, well, if you just could fix this, 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 and this, you wouldn't be offensive to me. You might be offensive to a hundred more people you're not offending right now, but at least you wouldn't be offensive to me. And what really matters, of course, in this conversation is, hey, emphasizing what edifies is always thinking about the other person, thinking about what God's big plan is, thinking about how God is moving in the midst of people. Sometimes it's recognizing this. Somebody else may be closer and in a better position to say what needs to be said than me. And I ought to pray that God would cause that person to say it. There are many times when someone asks me a question about something, I say, well, you're in a much better position to say that to that person than me. I know I'm the pastor of the church, but you have a true, deep, long-lasting friendship with that person. I can't, I mean, I could say it, but it wouldn't be near as helpful. I don't have near the credibility that you have built over a period of time with that person. Which means that in order to emphasize what edifies in a person's life, you actually have to spend time with them so that you know them. If you don't spend time with your brothers and sisters in Christ in your church family, you cannot know them, and therefore virtually most of the things you say are not going to edify. They're going to eventually be just something that's a clanging gong because the person can't hear the love. All they hear is, womp, 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 womp. 
And we need to just realize that as we come together as God's people, we're called to be ministers of His grace. That's what Paul then goes on to say. He says, it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So what we need to see then with emphasizing what edifies, it starts with an awareness of our need of grace, which makes us want to spread grace. This is what my friend Dustin Salter used to always say before every RUF. You are never so bad that you are beyond God's grace and never so good that you don't stand in need of God's grace. You're never so bad that you're beyond it, but you're never so good that you don't need it. See, we need to be people that recognize that. Which gives us a very different posture when we come to another person. This person is broken, wounded, hurt, tending towards self-centeredness, desiring what they want more than what I want, just like me. So when I speak to them, shouldn't I have some keen awareness that that's who they are and how they're operating? And speak to them within that framework. This points us then to the only source of true edification, which is God, the triune God, and His Word. Remember this, that you can't keep the second commandment. And I'm not talking about the second commandment, Tim. I'm talking about the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbors yourself. If you haven't got the vertical one in order, if you're not really pursuing the love of God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're not going to love your neighbor as yourself. It won't happen. This is why the social gospel fails. Not because some of the ideas they have are bad. Helping poor people is a good thing. Fighting against racial oppression is not a bad thing either. It's a good thing. But the way you go about it, what you think about it, what you think it's going to accomplish is very different depending on what you really believe and think. As I said before, we are to speak into people's lives and encourage them to look towards Christ. In that, we come to that last section there where it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So capture what corrupts, emphasize what edifies. Don't grieve, but believe. That's what's really being said here. And I want you to look at how that works itself out. The first thing I want you to recognize is this. We talk about God's love. We talk about Christ's love. You know, one of the things I rarely hear anybody talk about is how much the Holy Spirit loves us. You realize that God is love, and that's talking about the triune God. God is love. Not love is God. Let's be clear. God is love. It's not the only characteristic he has. It is one of the attributes which make him up. But it is his attribute to love. And therefore, what I want you to see is the fact that the Holy Spirit loves us because we are God's people. He is God. God loves his people. The Holy Spirit loves us so much that just like Jesus was willing to come to earth and become a man and live a perfect life and die a vile, horrible death, lay in the grave, be risen from the dead and ascended, the Spirit has come to indwell sinful people. How much love does that take for a perfect God to say, I will go and dwell in their midst? Not just in their midst, in them. Now see, you begin to see now why Paul thinks it's so important that you captivate what corrupts and that you emphasize what edifies. Why? Because the Holy Spirit who is in you who loves you, who has made you the temple of the living God, says when you do these things, you're destroying what I'm trying to build. 
I'm trying to build up the church. And you with your mouth are destroying it. Not only are you destroying it, you're my holy habitation. It's my holy habitation that's destroying my holy habitation. A wise woman builds up her house. A foolish woman tears it down, says the Proverbs. Do you see it? A wise church, bride of Christ, seeks to build up the house of God that has been built in Christ, laid on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. You see how Paul is drawing us into this theology of he's already been telling us. He says, now look, when you talk... Is your talk building up what I'm building? Or are you trying to annihilate the very house you are? Are you hurting the house that I'm building? And see, that's why in this passage what we see him saying is, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What we need to understand is then that while we be, when we're self-focused, we offend the Holy Spirit's sense of holiness. The other point is we wound Him because He loves us. We really do have the capacity to grieve the Spirit. Now that's a capacity He gives to us. Understand that that's a condescension on His part. But the reality is the Scriptures are not lying. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit who sealed you who basically is the testimony that you have salvation. Don't pursue those things which lead you away from salvation. Pursue those things which drive you towards it and draw other people towards it. You see what this is saying. The Spirit has come to focus our attention on our redemption in Christ. What should we be focusing on? Our redemption in Christ. What should we be drawing other people to be focusing on? Their redemption in Christ. Why? Because that is the very means by which they put off sin and put on Christ. If your focus is on God and His Word, if your focus is on the gospel of Christ, you cannot be focusing your attention on things which tear down and corrupt. You have to be focusing your attention on those things which build up. That is not a call to say that the only book you should ever read is the Bible, by the way, or the only books you should ever read are endorsed by a certain particular publishing house. It is to say that we are to spend enough time in God's Word and with His people and hearing what He has to say in prayer and church and the means of grace that when we walk out and see other things and work in other areas and read other things and watch other things, we have a Christianized world view and not a world Worldly worldview. That's the point. That's how we help one another. So, the idea here is that as you honor the Spirit by remembering who He is and what He's done for you, you are called to remember your redemption. See, He says, Paul says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Remember what He sealed you for. Focus on heaven. Get your mind in heaven where Christ is. And I want to say this very loud and clear. It has been saints throughout the ages who have had their heads in the clouds, so to speak, striving towards heaven that have been of the most earthly good. 
It is not people who look to the earth to find their answers. It's people who look to the heavens where Christ is that find real answers and have real words of hope and care and concern for people who are hurting. You cannot have somebody that's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. If they are of no earthly good, their minds are not captivated by Christ who is in heaven. Because Christ is concerned about people. The people He's already revealed as saved and those who He is seeking to save until the end comes. Christ is about people. If your mind is really focused on Christ, loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you cannot be of no use to your neighbor who needs you. It's impossible. In conclusion, then, our words can be a true source of God's redeeming work in the life of fellow believers and in the lives of everyone whom we come in contact. Here are three things I want to say to us. True redeeming speech requires us to know people in general, but also specifically. We need to know how humanity operates, but we need to know people, individual people around us. We need to know them. If I don't know you, I have a very difficult time speaking to you in a way that you can hear and in a way you need to hear, and that I really understand why you're doing what you're doing. Secondly, true redeeming speech requires that we are growing in our relationship with God and Christ by the Spirit. You can't just say, I got that done, and just hope for the best. You have got to be cultivating a relationship with the Lord. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and, and, uh, and he said, I said to him, I said, in the last several years, I have seen Jesus... And His help and goodness to me in ways I have never seen it before. I love Jesus more today than I ever loved Him in the past. He has been good to me and true to me in ways that I could never have anticipated. You see, unless you're growing in that kind of relationship, you're going to have a hard time ministering to other people. Do you know and love Jesus? Do you love Him? I mean, just unabashedly say, I love Him. I do. I love Him. And with the risk of being crass, I remember this one little kid that used to always tell me, Mr. Hermerding, I just love your guts. <laughs> and there's a, sense, there's a sense in which that's what I'm trying to say, that kind of just childlike, I just love my Jesus. I just love Him. Which then would lead us to that third thing, True redeeming speech requires us to know the words of Scripture. If you don't know the words of Scripture, you can't tell them to yourself and you don't have a good word for people in their time of need. There are plenty of words out there in the marketplace that may be helpful, but what you've got to know is the principles and the understanding that only Scripture can give to you. And lots of times those words are very helpful. Words like adoption. Words like redemption. Words like salvation. What does that mean in a biblical context? And how might that be helpful for the person you're talking to in their time of need? These things we need to do if we want to be used of God to be redemptive in our conversations. What I'm praying is that God will make it so in our midst. Amen.